Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about our sponsor. The University of Dallas is a premier Catholic liberal arts institution, renowned for its rigorous core curriculum and thriving graduate programs. Careers in ministry, teaching, business, humanities, and science are formed here. With campuses in Texas and Rome, Italy, students begin their pursuit of a life well-lived. We have two alums of Dallas here at First Things on staff, and they are both superb. For more information on the University of Dallas, visit udallas.edu. That's udallas.edu. Meyer Soloveitchik was the Erasmus lecturer for First Things in 2020. His lecture was entitled Lincoln's Almost Chosen People, later then published in the uh, magazine. His new book, after many other writings, is Providence and Power, Ten Portraits in Jewish Statesmanship. That's our topic today, and boy, do we need to hear a lot about statesmanship in, in year 2023. Welcome, Rabbi Soloveitchik. Thank you so much, Mark. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Now, you, you say, we jump right in, uh, to the book, you say that Jewish statesmanship joins, quote, political genius with ardent faith. Is this unusual for the Jewish for, for the Jewish religion, a little more so than we find in other religions? Well, so in answer to that, it's a very important question. Let's uh, discuss very briefly what I mean by the joining of, of statesmanship of faith, or if you will, providence and power. The archetype of, of this uh, dialectic, that is providence and power, is, is King David, about whom I actually have a piece in First Things uh, where some of these themes were first fleshed out. Uh, when you read the Psalms of King David, what strikes you is it's not clear when he's describing actions that he freely took and when he's describing the providential unfolding of God's chosen people. Uh, David is the biblical ideal of statesmanship, not because, of course, he's a perfect human being. He's certainly not that. Uh, but rather because uh, he sees uh, the most brilliant aspects of his career as, uh, as reasons for gratitude to God. Uh, I, had, I thought of you when I was originally asked by the publishers uh, uh, an encounter if I had a suggestion for a, uh, an image for the book. So uh, I had thought of uh, utilizing uh, Rembrandt's uh, wonderful etching of King David, uh, which stands in marked contrast to Michelangelo's depiction of David as uh, essentially a, a Greek divinity. Uh, Rembrandt gives us a David that is immersed in prayer uh, following his sin uh, with Bathsheba. A and what makes David stand out, and I actually, and maybe we can uh, share a link to my First Things article about King David, of what makes David stand out is, is that precisely at the moments in his career from his breakthrough moment, which is, of course, the stand against Goliath, which Michelangelo is seeking to depict, uh, to his conquest of the seemingly unconquerable city that was the Jebusite city of Jerusalem, to many other moments uh, in battle and in the wielding of power, precisely when David seems most brilliant in his statecraft, he accords all credit to God. And in his Psalms, uh, he, he seems to be describing uh, himself uh, as uh, engaging in in activity that God himself has ordained without in any way removing any freedom uh, on his own part. And so uh, he joins, uh, to use a phrase from my great uncle, Rabbi Joseph Salvation, 
he simultaneously joins together majesty and humility. This is the biblical idea. And so the question then, Mark, is what great statesman throughout history embodied this biblical ideal, or if you will, this Hebraic ideal? So if you take the, the greatest statesman of the 20th century, which I think was Winston Churchill, uh, he was truly a great man, but uh, humility, I think we can safely say, <laughs> was not one of his virtues. Uh, and I cite in the book uh, the, the anecdote told by William Manchester uh, about uh, when uh, Churchill got into a fight with his butler, and the butler, uh, he said to his butler, you know, you were very rude to me. And the butler said, well, you were very rude to me as well. And Churchill said, yes, but I am a great man. Uh, and then uh, <laughs> Manchester, Manchester writes, he said that the butler told this story to Manchester and said there was no arguing with him. He was right. He was right. Now, David, of course, was a great man. But that is, he would, Dave, we cannot imagine David saying something like this. And so... I once asked uh, the great Churchill biographer, Andrew Roberts, who's a friend of mine, whether he could name any uh, archetype of genius in the history of European statesmanship that also embodied this form of humility. Uh, and he didn't have one. Yeah. And so in response to your question of, is this a uniquely Jewish, uh, a uniquely, uh, Jewish uh, form of statesmanship, uh, I, I think, of course, I'm not arguing that all Jewish statesmen in the history of statecraft have embodied this, this balance of, of, of faith, of power and faith, or provid understanding of providence joined with the wielding of power, but rather that uh, there are moments in Jewish history where we can see this manifest, and that in the history of statesmanship at large, examples of this form of statesmanship are all too few and far between. Does David loom large in, in the minds of 20th century Jewish leaders or even 21st century aspiring Jewish leaders? Uh, oh, yes. So the, the Talmudic phrase uh, with which I begin my, my introduction to the book is uh, in Hebrew, David Melech Yisrael Chai V'Kayam. King David lives and endures. And one of the striking aspects of Jewish statesmanship, or at least the ideal of Jewish statesmanship that I emphasize in the book, uh, is uh, the ability to connect with figures from the past uh, that remain ever-present uh, before us. And, and this too, I think, is, it is uniquely Jewish. Uh, there's a scene in the movie Patton, which is a wonderful film, uh, and there's a scene at the beginning uh, where uh, Patton is in Morocco, I think, and he's driving with Omar Bradley. And he sees a site where uh, I think one of the battles of the Punic Wars took place. And he says suddenly, pull over, pull over. Uh, and of course, he had this whole notion of reincarnation, that he was present at every great battle in history or something. And he says to Bradley, something like, it was here, Brad, it was here. Uh, the Carthaginians were valiant, but the Romans were too powerful for them. And Omar Bradley is looking at him as if to say, who is this Meshuggahner? <laughs> Though I don't think he uses the Yiddish phrase, but he says, he's looking at him like he's crazy. And, you know, uh, Churchill, uh, and I verified this with Andrew, Churchill cited history. He was, of course, a historian. But he didn't go further back than, say, Agincourt. Whereas the final figure with whom I conclude my book, Menachem Begin, spoke about King David uh, a great deal. Uh, and uh, in defending the Jewish rights to Jerusalem, uh, once uh, quipped that he was going to rename 
like Washington, like the city of Washington, who's going to rename Jerusalem, Jerusalem, D.C., hmm. David's city. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, Jewish statesmanship as an ideal comes with what Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik called a, a unitive time consciousness, where uh, the figures from the past still live, and uh, the story is told, it's apocryphal, but uh, you know, it, we'll put it in the rabbinic category of too good to check, uh, that they once asked Rabbi Soloveitchik, what were his thoughts uh, as uh, the Jewish community was proceeding to mark the 800th anniversary of the death of Maimonides? Uh, and Rabbi Soloveitchik replied, this is the first time that anyone is telling me that Maimonides is not alive. <laughs> uh, and that's a very, very Jewish attitude to memory, and rightly understood, it lies at the heart of the biblical ideal of statesmanship. I think it's a healthy uh, attitude, frankly. Uh, side question, does David's son Solomon possess the same humility, gratitude, and maybe if he doesn't, is that one reason why he doesn't stand as a state, as a model figure? So, so Solomon is a fascinating and in many ways tragic figure. He achieves uh, David's dream of, of building the temple. And the vision that he puts forward is incredibly bold. And I don't have a chapter on my, in my book about Solomon precisely because in a certain sense, the story of Solomon, a lot of it contains lessons about what not to do. Uh, but we have to understand the boldness of his vision as long as you're asking about it. it David's dream when it came to Jerusalem was creating a, a temple that would serve as a source of unity for the Jewish people. And of course it was that. And that's why David conquered Jerusalem originally because it was a shared city. Jerusalem was on the border between the tribes of Benjamin and Judah, his tribe and the tribe of Saul. And he sought to unite Israel following the civil war. Solomon, after he builds the temple, builds on David's vision and adds a universalistic element, which is very powerful, in which Jerusalem becomes a site of prayer not only for Israel, but for ideally for all the world. And that's that is part of the vision, of course, that Judaism embraces and is later expressed in Isaiah's visions. But Solomon's method of achieving this was empire. And so that leads to uh, royal intermarriages with uh, many uh, pagan uh, princesses, uh, brings them into Jerusalem, which ultimately brings paganism into Jerusalem itself. And so Solomon's vision is incredibly bold and still lives as a vision of what Jerusalem ultimately will be. As Isaiah speaks, when all the nations will come to Jerusalem and say, come, let us go up to the house of God, to the house of the God of Jacob. But empire is not the path to, to achieving it. And that was Solomon's mistake. He thought through empire he could spread monotheism. He thought he could spread belief in problems through the power of empire. And in the end, the very reverse happened. Rather than ending paganism, paganism itself, in his empire, infected Jerusalem itself. On David, you find some of his greatness lies in moments of his defeat or his, or his, his shame. Yes. Uh, statesmanship doesn't necessarily always mean the winners. No. Not at all, and uh, you're hitting on one of my pet peeves about David. I think David is, he's simultaneously the most, one of the most famous figures in the, from the Bible to this day, even in this age of biblical illiteracy. So many have heard of David, 
and yet the lessons of his life are so fundamentally misapplied. Uh, I could show you cases of both parties today, or, or at least people from both parties or different ends of the political spectrum. Whenever there's a political scandal, they say, well, well you know, David did, did sins, you know. Uh, and uh, of course, it, it is perfectly logical at times to support a political candidate despite that candidate's flaws. But to compare political candidates today to David fundamentally misunderstands the fact that it's precisely in David's failings that we often see the very essence of his greatness. So one of the greatest, one of the most extraordinary uh, and eloquent descriptions of penitence is the psalm that David gave us after his sin with Bathsheba. And that's actually the moment uh, that uh, Rembrandt is depicting in his etching of David. Uh, when David says in the psalm, and my sin is ever before me, Rembrandt places David in this etching, praying before his bed, before the bed where he committed the sin, uh, with, with Bathsheba. And you read that psalm and you think, can you imagine uh, a politician today, mired in scandal, composing that psalm? And so I think, I, I think, uh, and a cousin of mine, uh, the, the great Jewish historian, uh, Chaim Soloveitchik, in one of his famous essays, Rupture and Reconstruction, uh, argued that just even to very religious and observant people today, the feeling of God's presence and our utter reliance on him is something that is lacking in modernity. And I think that so marks David's life, both in victory and in defeat, and it's so foreign to so many today, that they just they 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 find so much of David's story remarkable, but they find it difficult to to identify with the very source of his greatness, and so they misuse or misapply yeah. the lessons of his life. Next in your gallery uh, comes a female, Esther, whom you whom you call a queen for all seasons. Uh, what what why does Esther belong in in this uh, all star rank? So in a certain sense, even after all the credit I give to David, in a certain sense, I actually credit Esther with inventing Jewish statesmanship. Uh, now, let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, David is a political ideal in his fusion of power and providence. But David, like most of the political figures in Hebrew scripture, lives at a time of prophecy. And, and ultimately, most often the great test of uh, a biblical leader is the extent to which he or she uh, listens to uh, the word of God, obeys the word of God. David obeys the word of God, and indeed, David's greatest moment in defeat is when the prophet Nathan comes and accuses him, and rather than making excuses for his failings, as Saul does, David immediately replies in Hebrew, Chatati Lashem, I have sinned unto the Lord. Esther, in contrast, and this is also a point made by Rabbi Joseph Solomon, Esther lives at uh, the, the, the ending of the, the exile following the destruction of the first temple. And she lives at a time when prophecy, according to Jewish tradition, is coming to an end. As, as you and I both know, Mark, the, the one name uh, that does not appear in the book of Esther is the name of God. Uh, and therefore, and it is, of course, the only biblical book about which that can be said. 
Uh, and that highlights, on the one hand, as is often said, uh, the, the Jewish faith that providence still exists even when God is not explicitly present. But it also means that Esther cannot turn to a prophet for guidance. There is no Elijah. There is no Nathan. There is no Jeremiah telling her what to do. She has political advice from her cousin, Mordechai. But the amazing part of the story is that actually she doesn't listen to his advice. She rather devises a plan of her own to save the Jewish people. One grounded in, if you will, realpolitik and a, uh, an incredibly psychologically insightful understanding of the paranoia of the king to whom she is married. Uh, it's, it's when you read about uh, the supreme actors, uh, for better or for worse, but the gifted actors in, in the, the, the court of Henry VIII, you get an idea of what it means to act with guile in the court of a paranoid king. I, I have to say that your, your description of that scene uh, of her and also your description of what she might have done, what, what may naturally, what, what, what most people would do in, in that situation is masterful, uh, the, way, the way you lay it out there. So, so I, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, not at all. I mean, thank you. I, I mean, it, the, the, the point is that Mordechai says, we have this decree. You should go to the king to whom you've been married and to whom you have failed to reveal that you're Jewish and just spring on him the fact that you've been hiding your identity the whole time and that now he looks like an idiot because he's signed on to this decree uh, 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 ordering the genocide of the Jews while not knowing that his own wife was Jewish and you should just embarrass him in court. That's not how Mordechai says it, but that's essentially what he's asking her to do. And she effectively responds. She's inspired into action on behalf of her people by her cousin. But she effectively says, in not so many words, that's a terrible idea. I'm not going to do that. And this is a point made by Rabbi Soloveitchik. It would be, if you imagine somebody doing this to Stalin, (laughs) what would happen to that person? Uh, And she says, instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite my husband uh, to a romantic dinner for three, (laughs) along with his vizier. Uh, And uh, obviously, that will prey on 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 his emotions. The, the greatest depiction, I think, of the mind of Achashverosh, even though Achashverosh is never mentioned, is the great, is the great uh, soliloquy of Richard II in Shakespeare, uh, where he describes a king uh, constantly, uh, for within the hollow, uh, for, for within the hollow crown that, that, that rounds the temples of the king, keeps death his court. That they're, they're constantly nervous about who is trying to take them out. Or as Richard II says, some, some, I'm getting it slightly wrong, but it's something like, some killed by their wives, all murdered. That's what he says. And of course, this is someone who, like Henry VIII, Achashverosh, has already gotten rid of one of his wives. Uh, and so this is a paranoid, a paranoid, powerful tyrant. And you need to recognize reality and devise a strategy within the court in which you live. And she does so with guile and with brilliance, and then ultimately, when it comes to facing the enemies of the Jews, with ruthlessness. And, and we can learn from all of these aspects of her example. Well, one interesting feature that you bring out about her is she doesn't grow up in a Jewish household. So what is that? You says that makes her in a way better prepared to, to save her people. How so? Yeah. So uh, what I say is, is that uh, she grows up enough of an acculturated member of Persian society yeah. 
that she can fully pass uh, as a non-Jew. The, the, the shocking, the, the, the most shocking aspects of the Book of Esther, Mark, are aspects that would have been incredibly evident to those reading the book at the time when it was written, but totally lost on us, which is the fact that Esther originally is not a Jewish name. She has a Hebrew name in the book. It's Hadassah. Uh, Esther is, of course, a pagan name. And you could go to the Pergamon Museum in Berlin today and see uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, Gate of Ishtar dedicated to the god Marduk. Uh, Ishtar is a female uh, divinity uh, related to uh, sex and fertility. That's part of the ir ironic aspect of the story, of course, the providential ironic aspect of the story. And Mordechai is also Marduk. Um, you know, and these are, so we're supposed to be shocked, actually, that this is their, these are their names. These are their names. It would be like a, a Jew named Zeus. Hmm. That's what it would be like. And, and, and the central drama of her story, of course, is when the choice comes to side with her people, to identify with her people, what choice does she make? And she chooses, of course, to side with the people. That everyone understands is the central is the central drama. What people often miss, however, is the political brilliance in which she follows up. Loyalty is not enough. It's important, but it's not enough. One of my favorite uh, quotes, uh, and I, I believe I mentioned this in the book, is from the the movie, the Steven Spielberg movie Lincoln. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think this is actually something Lincoln said, uh, but Lincoln is trying to explain. Uh, to an abolitionist congressman, why it's not enough to have the right ideals, that you need to understand the art of statecraft in order to get the 13th Amendment passed, banning slavery. And Lincoln says in the movie something like, when I was a surveyor, I learned that it was not enough to be able to recognize the North Star to find true north. Because if you can recognize where north is, but you're still going to fall in some mine or pit along the way, What's the point of knowing true north? Now, of course, it's always important to know true north morally and ideally. It's important to have the right ideals, but to achieve those ideals, you have to have a sense of how to get there. And Mordechai inspires Esther to look true north, but it's Esther that provides the statecraft to actually get there. And so, guile, or at least cleverness, yes, uh, the ability to read people, maybe to manipulate, uh, these, these are all part of the, the, is the art of statesmanship. Oh, yes. And uh, especially, and it's especially important, Mark, when it comes to Jewish statesmanship throughout history, <laughs> right. because very often you are representing a people that has no ability to wield power. So how else are you going to engage in statecraft? without a profound understanding of the political figures whom you are engaging. So to, to take a, a great example in American history, when Benjamin Franklin, after 1776, shows up in the court of the French king, he's not wielding American power. He's not coming there with... The French have nothing to fear from this nascent nation. He is coming with cleverness and even guile playing on the sentiments of French society who see him as a sort of celebrity. 
and having a deep understanding of what the French want, which is, of course, to embarrass the British. Uh, and, and in bringing the French into the war, he helps America win it. But he doesn't do it by wielding American power. And that's precisely what Esther does. It's what another figure in my, in my book, Menashe ben Israel, does in seeking uh, uh, to uh, convince the Lord and protector of England, Oliver Cromwell, to allow the Jews back into England after being expelled in 1290. They are allowed in in 1656. Um, never officially, as, as I describe, uh, in the way that he sought, but in a way that ultimately, I argue, works out for Anglo-Jewish history. Uh, and, and, and that's why guile, and, and, or at least cleverness, and the ability to read the statesman that you are engaging is so important to Jewish statesmanship and Jewish, Jewish statecraft throughout so much of Jewish history. Let's jump uh, ahead to a figure who, who will be familiar to our listeners, but maybe not so much in these terms, Justice Brandeis. So, so a Supreme Court just, he, he has statesmanship. What, where did that lie? So uh, it, this is not uh, the, the United States of, of 2023. Supreme Court justices a acted in a political fashion throughout much of Jewish history. I'm sorry, sorry. Supreme Court, uh, Supreme Court justices acted throughout uh, much of American history in, in a profoundly political way from, uh, from uh, Chief Justice Marshall onward. Uh, and uh, Justice Brandeis, at the time that he was sitting on the Supreme Court, was also a political confidant of President Wilson and ended up being one of the central figures in Wilson's support for the Balfour Declaration and served as a go-between uh, for uh, the ongoing discussions between Britain and the United States. The, the shocking aspect of, of Brandeis' story, Mark, is not that as Supreme Court Justice he was serving in this capacity. It's that as Jewish American he was serving in this capacity because for so much of his life he had been so profoundly assimilated and so antagonistic to open Jewish identity in America that his story is positively providential. Uh, the examples like Brandeis I offer in the book not as examples of faith. Uh, Brandeis never became uh, a, a devout Jew, but rather because his story, uh, like that of Herzl in a different context, is so unlikely that uh, it, in my view, can only be explained through the presence of providence uh, in the story of the Jewish people. He, he became a Zionist. He became a Zionist uh, at, uh, because after being incredibly, uh, incredibly critical of Jews who maintained a public Jewishness culturally and religiously in America. And he became a Zionist through a, a seemingly chance conversation in Cape Cod uh, with a journalist who had been a secretary of Theodore Herzl and who came to interview him and think about tax law. Uh, and as he was driving this journalist back to the train station, the journalist said something like, were you by any chance related to the noble Jew Louis Dembitz, which was Brandeis' uncle, uh, and a great American as well as a great Jew, uh, a prominent Republican in the 19th century, 
supporter of Lincoln and abolition. R Rabbi, I, I call this providential. Yes, it is. It is indeed providential. Uh, and that one conversation uh, led to a series of events in which just a couple years later, Brandeis was not only a Zionist, but effectively one of the most prominent Zionists on earth, because when much of Europe was at war, the Zionist leadership effectively, in many ways, moved to America in many capacities. In, in many, in many, in many capacities, and he he assumed uh, a position in the Zionist leadership. And so uh, there's there's so many um, there's so many seemingly chance aspects or contingent aspects to the story uh, that it becomes in its own way a tale of providence and power, as so many different aspects of the story of the birth of modern Israel uh, in the 20th century actually is. That story is, is told through, through as, as, as Rabbi Soloveitchik said, uh, Menachem Begin and others. Uh, but for now, the book is Providence and Power, 10 Portraits in Jewish Statesmanship. Rabbi, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Mark.